We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back. The road to America's Civil War had many twists and turns, and one of them was the dilemma posed in the South and in the North by slaves fleeing their Southern bondage. In an effort to keep the Union intact, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850, requiring slaves who fled north to be returned to their slave masters. This history is told in detail in the book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. It's by Andrew Del Banco. I spoke to him yesterday and asked about the genesis of the Fugitive Slave Act. Well, uh, ever since the founding of the United States uh, in 1787, it was clear that there was going to be uh, an issue uh, when an enslaved person tried to flee from a slave state uh, to a free state. And uh, that was an issue at the, con- at the time of the Constitution, which we can talk about. Uh, the Congress tried to deal with it uh, repeatedly over the next uh, almost 75 years. And in 1850, for various reasons, the issue was coming to a boil, and the Congress passed a merciless law trying to make it hard, if not impossible, for a fugitive slave to find sanctuary in the North, and uh, that's part of the story that I try to tell in this book. And tell it very well, by the way. I enjoyed it uh, very much. What, what, what were some of the provisions in the Act? Uh, you call it merciless. So what were some of the merciless provisions? Well, you know, let's go back a second to the Constitution itself, sure. which included a clause which was, came to be known as the Fugitive Slave Clause that stated in very vague and rather passive language that uh, no person seeking uh, to escape service or labor in one state could do so by going to another state, but would have to be returned to the person to whom such service or labor was due. You can tell, perhaps, from the way I just paraphrased it, that the Constitution failed to stipulate who was going to enforce this provision. Mm -hmm. Was it going to be the local police authority or the state authority or the federal government, which at the time of the founding was rather weak and had very little to say about what happened in the states? So as as the border between the slave states and the free states got longer and more porous over the first half of the 19th century, and it was no longer just a question of slaves fleeing, let's say, from Maryland or Virginia to Pennsylvania, but now it became an issue of Kentucky to Ohio or Missouri to Illinois or Indiana. The problem became more and more serious uh, as a political problem, and as I try to show in the book, as a, as a human problem and often a, a human tragedy. People in the uh, South were accusing Northerners of not respecting their so-called property rights. Believe it or not, the Constitution... Mm-hmm protected those property rights, even though it was human property. And people in the North accused Southerners of sending kidnappers across the border to take back not only fugitive slaves, but any other black person, often free black people, um, who uh, were available for the taking. So in 1850, the Congress, realizing that the nation was on the precipice of a breakup, you know, we think of the fact that there was, in fact, a breakup in 18. 60, 61, but there was good reason to believe that it might have happened in 1850. 
So the Congress made a complicated compromise, which we now know as the Compromise of 1850, at the center of which was this new fugitive slave law. And I say it was merciless, because if you think about what it said, I don't think there's another word. It denied any accused fugitive the right to habeas corpus, the basic right in the Anglo-American legal tradition that you can contest the legality of your detention in open court. It denied the right to trial by jury. It denied the right to testify on your own behalf. It made it a federal crime for a citizen in the North to aid or harbor a fugitive slave. And it created a, a, well, not quite created, but enlarged a category called commissioners, federal commissioners, who were authorized to uh, hold a hearing, consider whether this person, in fact, belonged to someone in the South, and send him or her back without any semblance of, of due process. So uh, it, it broke all the norms of legal, <clears throat> legal traditions in this country, and it led to some unexpected consequences, to put it mildly. You, you write about uh, our being a composite nation at this time, filled with moral ambiguities. But the bottom line was, as, as I read it and understand it was, this was simply an attempt to hold the Union together. Well, that's where the more, I, I think that's where the moral ambiguities come in, because uh, I think most listeners, I hope all listeners listening to the way I just described the law, would agree that it would be impossible to defend such a law on moral grounds. How could you make a case that this was justice? This was not justice. But it was consistent with the Constitution of the United States, at least in the minds of most judges and lawyers at that time, including judges and lawyers who were personally deeply opposed to slavery as, as an unjust form of uh, human, human relations. So people found themselves, uh, people in the North, white people I'm speaking about in the North, found themselves in a situation where they were in conflict with their own commitments. On the one hand, the Congress had passed this law because, as you just suggested, without it, it looked like the nation would come to pieces. On the other hand, it was a patently unjust law. And I guess I would say that it's that problem, that contradiction. What do you do in the face of an unjust law when something so, so critical as the survival of the nation is at stake? What do you do? How do you think about that? How do you act? And the fact is, you find some surprising people on the side of reluctantly supporting that law, including, for instance, Abraham Lincoln. That was a bit of a surprise, I think, to a lot of people, that he was wavering on that issue for a period of time. Yes. I mean, I would, I would make the case, and I think I could make it convincingly, that Lincoln personally hated slavery. There's no ambiguity in my mind about that. And yet in 1855, he writes a letter to a friend in which he says, and I'm closely paraphrasing, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and returned to their stripes, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. So the question arises, why? And Lincoln was not alone in this regard. One of the figures that I write about in the book was a man named William Greenleaf Elliott, um, oh, yeah founder of Washington University, important figure in, in early St. Louis. And although he didn't speak out explicitly about the fugitive slave law, he too bit his lip and kept quiet on the subject of slavery 
through the 1830s and 40s and 50s, not because he didn't loathe slavery. He writes privately in his diary about how he couldn't stand the sound of the howls of the slaves held for auction uh, in the city of St. Louis at that time. But he felt that he was in a better position to move things slowly but surely in the direction of moral progress by keeping that issue to himself. So he organized a school for black children. And when the, when the Civil War actually, when, when the Civil War broke out and everything changed, then he was willing to harbor a fugitive slave in his own home. There were other figures of this, of this type who, who were divided between their personal revulsion at slavery and their personal conviction that uh, without supporting that law, however reluctantly, the nation itself would come, come apart. And it, it's, it's, it's worth saying, if I may just go on just a little longer, when we speak of the nation coming apart, it was not at all clear if the South had seceded in 1850 Number one, it's not clear that the North would have resisted secession with military means. It was a, it was a close call as to whether it would resist in 1861 when secession did come. Moreover, it's not clear that secession would not have been for the benefit of the slaveholders. That is, there were, there were powerful figures in the South who imagined a slave-based empire expanding into the Caribbean, to Cuba, further into Mexico. So in other words, a, a figure like Lincoln could be anti-slavery and could say, and I think this is what he did believe, that ultimately the destruction of slavery depended on the preservation of the Union. And uh, I think that's how he resolved the contradiction in his own mind. But it's a difficult one, and it's part of the story I try to tell. You wrote, I, I believe here, that a civil war within a civil war was taking place in Missouri at the time. Yes, I mean uh, I'm not a I'm not a, a authority on Missouri history, but from what I what I do know, I mean you had you had armed conflict between pro secessionists and and pro union forces in Missouri. You had St. Uh, uh, Louis was a city where there was a lot of abolitionist sentiment, a lot of recent immigrants from Europe who had quite radical political views, and other areas of the state, an area known as Little Dixie. You had a, a, a strong hemp, uh, hemp growing uh, agricultural based economy where slavery remained an important institution. So Missouri was a kind of microcosm of the whole nation. And uh, it was very important for, for Lincoln and for the cause of the Union to keep Missouri in the Union. And that's what he did, regardless of uh, what critics might say about him coming from, from, the, left, from the left, as I just suggested. We also had Elijah Lovejoy in nearby Alton, Illinois. We had a free state in Illinois, and we had a fairly active Underground Railroad uh, here in Missouri, as I understand it. Indeed, indeed. I mean, Elijah Lovejoy, the murder of Elijah Lovejoy, which, as you say, took place in Alton, Illinois, after he had moved out of Missouri, was one of the milestones on the road toward radical alienation between, between the North and the South. And Lincoln himself made reference to that event early in his political career and sounded the warning that, um, that uh, a nation where vigilantes on either side, uh, pro-slavery or anti-slavery, took the law into their own hands, was a nation that was heading toward, toward disaster. 
Uh, and yes, uh, there were uh, there were many in Missouri who were sympathetic to the plight of slaves who aided fugitives. Nobody, I think, has an accurate count of how many fugitives fled from either Missouri or from any slave state. Um, it was very hard to know what the numbers were. Both sides, in effect, had had incentive to uh, exaggerate how many were fleeing. The Southerners stated that the number was very high in order to make the case that they were suffering economically and, and, and the North had to do something to stop the flow. And Northerners stated the case in order, in order to convince people what a, what a terrible, brutal institution slavery was, which, of course, it was. Uh, though the fact is that for slaves in the Deep South, in the Plantation South, where conditions were unspeakably uh, inhuman, escaping from the plant, deep plantation south was a very rare event indeed. So there's a sense in which the fugitive slave problem of the 19th century, if I may make a audacious and perhaps uh, not quite appropriate analogy, had some characteristics in common with the uh, debate we're having now over illegal immigration. The fugitive slaves were, after all, undocumented migrants, if one could put it that way. They, they had no legal papers entitling them to cross the border between a slave state and a free state. And, yet, and they became a sort of flashpoint in the, in the political uh, struggle of, of that time. And the facts, that is exactly how many of them there were, uh, how many of them were, as uh, some people in the North actually believe, were threatening the jobs of uh, blue-collar northern workers. Uh, all of that is, is very hard to say and very hard to pin down. Yeah. What we can say is that the issue of their rights, should they be treated as human beings with the right to seek a better life, or should they be treated as lawbreakers who must be returned to where they came from, that became a hot-button issue in the 1850s, just as immigration is a hot-button issue today. You wrote uh, that the fugitive slaves were the first Black Lives Matter movement. Well, yes, in the, in the sense that uh, they themselves, uh, many of them contributed very powerfully to the anti-slavery movement in the 1840s and 50s. Uh, Frederick Douglass was the most famous of them, but there were many others who became... Uh, regular speakers on the on the abolitionist speaking circuit who published their memoirs became in a, in effect national and even international in the case of Frederick Douglass celebrities um, and they also provoked uh, in the north a resistance movement it was a biracial resistance movement but in many of the cities of the of the north and here's another parallel perhaps to today uh, these cities declared themselves in effect sanctuary cities people in Boston in Syracuse uh, and elsewhere, said, you know, uh, the federal authorities are not coming to our town and forcing us to turn over our, our, our neighbors under the, under the force of this fugitive slave law. And that, that resistance movement uh, was, I think, arguably the first time that black Americans organized themselves politically and sometimes extra-politically, that is, took matters into their own hands to defend what they considered to be their rights and their vital interests. 
You, you write uh, and spoke just uh, just now about the, the vigilantes. One of the things that I found very interesting about this whole process was that um, blacks who had long since been free in the North were often abducted by vigilante types, I guess, and brought back to the South where they were sold into slavery. Yes. Now, you use the word often. And again, I would, I would caution us to... I don't think anybody has a good handle on how, how often this happened. But that it did happen is certainly the case. Uh, one of the most famous examples, the people will know it perhaps from the recent movie, 12 Years a Slave, uh, Solomon Northup, who was a free black man living in upstate New York, was duped into traveling to Washington by a couple of guys who convinced him that he could make a living by playing the violin, which he was good at. And once he got to Washington, they threw him into a slave pen and had him sold into slavery, and he spent 12 years on a plantation until, through the intervention of the governor of New York, he was he was brought back uh, to the north. That was one of the most dramatic cases, but there were many instances, particularly on the southern border of Pennsylvania and, and, uh, and Ohio, where free black people who had never been enslaved were at risk of being kidnapped mm. and, and taken in, in, into slavery. And indeed, that risk continued into the Civil War. I mean, when General Lee's army was retreating from Gettysburg in 1863, uh, free black people living in, in Pennsylvania were absolutely terrorized by the Confederate troops and in, in, in some cases uh, seized and abducted and taken south. So no black person in the North felt secure, and uh, it's one of the dark aspects of our history that I think we're not sufficiently aware of, that um, it took a very long time, and indeed I'm not sure we've yet uh, arrived at that time, when black Americans could feel that they could walk down the street in safety and dignity and not fearful of the local law enforcement forces or uh, uh, vigilantes uh, doing doing what they would would like to do. A couple of other things before we have to uh, say goodbye. What about the media of the day, the newspapers and the judiciary? How are they responding to this? Well, you know, sometimes we think the media has never been as polarized as it is today. And, you know, we got Fox News on one side and MSNBC on the other side, and, and uh, everybody just listens to what they prefer to hear. I think I think it probably has reached a point of, in, of intensity today that none of us is, can remember from our lifetime. But if you look back to the middle of the 19th century, it wasn't all that different. Almost every newspaper was a partisan paper. So you could have two papers in the same town, this was certainly true in St. Louis, uh, who were, uh, one, in one case, uh, cheering the Congress for having passed this law, and in the other case, uh, excoriating the Congress for passing such a law. Uh, so, and you had the rise also, you spoke of the Black Lives Matter movement, you had the rise beginning in the late 1820s of uh, black newspapers, black periodicals. Frederick Douglass edited a, a periodical when he was living in Rochester, New York, that became an important voice in the anti-slavery movement. Um, so the media was a lively forum for, we could call it debate if we want to be polite, but uh, screaming matches and mutual um, uh, excoriation would be a little closer, uh, closer to the truth. As for the judiciary, the problem for anti-slavery judges was that the Constitution contained this fugitive slave clause. 
So there was almost no way for uh, a judge who had sworn loyalty to the Constitution to rule against a slave owner who had uh, proper paperwork and gone through the process and could prove that a given individual had once belonged to him according to the laws of the state where this person resided. So there are very few cases of the courts ruling against slaveholders in the 1830s and 1840s. Now, the northern states, led by Pennsylvania, but not only Pennsylvania, also Ohio, Massachusetts, and others, passed what were called personal liberty laws that tried to make it as difficult as possible for slave owners to retrieve their human property and also tried to protect free black people from being abducted on the pretext that they had once been slaves. So such laws, for example, would require jury trial or would require multiple affidavits by so-called objective witnesses to to, uh, uh, corroborate the claims of the slave owner. You know, from the Southern point of view, these were all designed to just make it as hard as possible for slave owners to go through the legal process to get your so-called property back. So this, these laws were fought out in the courts. Uh, in 1842, in a decision by the United States Supreme Court, they were essentially declared unconstitutional because they conflicted with the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution. But the court left the door open just a crack, so a whole wave of new personal liberty laws were passed in the, uh, in the 1840s and, and 1850s. So it's a complicated story, but you can see, sure. as I put it, somewhere in the book. This was a struggle that was fought out in Congress, in the courts, in in the newspapers, and most of all, perhaps, in the hearts and minds of Americans. And I think it's an important story for Americans to understand today. It's a very important story and very well told in your book. I, I would certainly recommend it uh, not only to history buffs, but people who want to understand a little better why, how we got to where we are today. I want to leave with a quote from um, William Greenleaf Elliott, whom you mentioned earlier. He wrote, the best condition of slavery is worse than the worst condition of freedom. Well pointed out in your book. Exactly, and and Eliot believed that to the depths of his soul, which makes it all the more striking that he felt that under the circumstances as a Unitarian minister in St. Louis, trying to nudge things forward a little bit, he didn't feel that he could speak out about it publicly. That's a question that we'll still be debating years hence, I think, as to whether that was the right call. What a story. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the book. And a lot of folks are going to learn a lot more about you and the book at uh, the event this evening. Thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. Author, historian Andrew Delbanco, he'll be discussing his book, The War Before the War, at the County Library at 7 o'clock tonight in St. Louis County.